Well, this morning we're going to see why Christ is enough for us, why he is so compelling that we should deny ourselves and take up our cross daily and follow him. And I'm referring to the next section in our study of the Gospel of John, John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, a very familiar story, maybe one of the most beloved stories in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him. And he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery, in the very act. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone and the woman where she was in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on, sin no more. Father, we thank you for this story that reveals your heart. We know that how Jesus responded to these Pharisees and how Jesus responded to this woman uh, reveals to us what you think of self-righteous, hypocritical, legalistic judging of others. And Lord, it also reveals what you think about sinners and the forgiveness that you want to offer to us. And so, Lord, I just ask that you would convict those who need to be convicted this morning and that you would comfort those who need to be comforted this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most well-known novels in American literature is Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter. And I'm sure that many of you had that assigned to you in some uh, place in your education, whether in high school or in college. The story is set in 17th century Puritan New England, and it tells the story of Hester Prynne, whose husband was presumed dead uh, on her journey, on his journey to the New World. And so she uh, ends up having this clandestine relationship with Arthur Dimsdale, who happens to be the highly regarded town minister. She becomes pregnant and gives birth to a daughter that she names Pearl. Consequently, Hester is publicly vilified and forced to wear a big scarlet letter A on her clothing to identify her as an adulteress and to serve as a constant reminder of the crime that she had committed. However, because of her loyalty, she refuses to reveal who the father is. As for Dimsdale, knowing that for him, the punishment would be not just shame, but execution, he wasn't about to admit his relationship with Hester. 
Instead, he dutifully plays out his role as the minister of the town by ridiculing and humiliating her in the town square and interrogating her about the identity of the father. The entire time, he maintains his righteous image, but inside, he's overwhelmed by the guilt of hypocrisy. And eventually, his poor health drives him to full public disclosure of his part in the adulterous affair, and after which he collapses and dies. Well, not only was he overcome with mental and emotional anguish, he had been slowly poisoned by Hester's husband, who had showed up in town anonymously and knew the truth of what had really happened. And through this tragic um, novel, Hawthorne explored the topics of sin and, and guilt and grace and repentance and legalism and society's meaningless judgment system. And ever since he wrote this novel, The Scarlet Letter has become a symbol in our society of shame and condemnation for not just the sin of adultery, but for any kind of shameful sin. And here in John chapter 8, the story of the woman caught in adultery is really an ancient adaptation of the scarlet letter. And it highlights the same themes of sin and guilt and grace and repentance and legalism and uh, injustice. Here we have a, a nameless woman who was publicly humiliated for her sin of adultery. She plays the role of Hester Prynne. The legalistic scribes and Pharisees represent the character of Arthur Dimsdale while dutifully shaming the adulterous woman. They were intent on maintaining their own righteous image. And they even interrogated Jesus whether or not the woman deserved to die for her sin, but he knew the truth about what was in their hearts. And he confronted their self-righteous, legalistic, prejudiced judgment system, and they were the ones who ended up being shamed. Now, before we dive into this story, there's a unique feature about this particular text that, that I need to address just, just briefly. Um, although this text is often cited and preached, there is evidence that has led many Bible scholars to conclude that this uh, that it's highly unlikely that this, was, uh, that this was a part of the original gospel or, or, or part of the original part of John's gospel. In other words, they say it doesn't belong in Scripture. Um, and when you examine a text like this to determine its authenticity, what textual critics will do is they'll look at two types of evidence. They'll look at the internal evidence and they'll look at the external evidence. The internal evidence is, is really the vocabulary, the style of writing, um, and, and that seems to indicate that this section was written by someone other than John because it doesn't sound the way John wrote the rest of the gospel. That's what some textual critics say. The external evidence is basically what copiers, those who have copied the scriptures over the years, and church fathers said or did regarding this passage, and that makes it unlikely as well that this was originally included in in the Gospel of John, because the earliest and the, the best manuscripts leave out this passage. In fact, you probably have a little note in your Bible, um, like I do, kind of a little asterisk by verse 53, and it says this, later manuscripts add the story of the adulterous woman. Um, but it is still in your Bible, isn't it? Interesting. Um, the other thing that's interesting is that the manuscripts that do include this passage, some put it here in John chapter 8, others in John 21, one even places it in Luke 21. 
And so again, this adds weight to the argument that this was really an oral tradition that was added at some point in the future or later uh, by copyists. In fact, no church father comments on this passage until the 12th century. Augustine, the church father, suggested that some purposely excluded this passage as they were copying the scriptures because they feared that it would give license to sin. In other words, here's an example of Jesus condoning sin. The woman got off scot-free, and we wouldn't want people to think that that is what, you know, how Jesus thinks about sin. And so all that to say, the fact that this passage is included in most English translations shows that while there is reasonable doubt surrounding it, we can't be absolutely certain. We can't know for sure. It can't be proven that the story was originally written by John, but it can't be proven that it wasn't either. So when in doubt, it's better to keep it in the text and throw it out. And in my opinion, it's better to preach it than to skip over it like some commentators do. And there are certain commentators that I've grown to love uh, studying and, and reading and, and helping me prepare uh, this series on the Gospel of John. And there was a few this week where I was l- looking forward to reading what they had to say about this, this epic portion of God's Word, and they didn't even address it. It was like they went from chapter 7, verse 52, to chapter 8, verse 12. And I'm like, hey, did they cut the chat? Where, where, is, it? where is it? What do, you, what do you say about this passage? I want to know what you have to say. And some of them even put it as an appendix. Like it didn't warrant like a place in the commentary. But we'll put it at the very end as an appendix, kind of an afterthought. Well, again, I would say this, that while the authenticity of this passage is in question, its veracity isn't. In other words, everything in this passage is in perfect agreement with the rest of Scripture, which, by the way, is one of the ways you determine what is in the canon and what wasn't, right? That was one of the, one of the standards was it has to be consistent with the rest of Scripture. It can't, be, it can't contradict anything else in Scripture. And so this really paints an accurate picture of Jesus Christ as we see him in the rest of the Gospels. What he says and does here in this story is consistent with what he says and does in other similar situations. And so my personal opinion is that this is a true historic event from Christ's life. And even John at the end of the gospel mentions that there was a whole lot more things that Jesus said and did. One book couldn't contain them all. And I've only given you a selected selected, um, number of them. And so this is one of those uh, accounts that maybe didn't make it into John's gospel, but they put it in, some copyists put it in later. But I personally am thankful to God for providentially preserving this text for us for our instruction and edification because in this this classic account of the woman caught in adultery, Jesus models for us the perfect balance of grace and truth when ministering to sinners by not condemning sin but not condoning sin either. And we were introduced to Jesus back in John chapter 1 in John's prologue. If you remember in verse 14... He says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. That's how John summarized the glory of God in Christ. He said Jesus was full of grace and truth. In other words, if you wanted to boil down what does it mean to be like Jesus, right? If you just wanted two simple things to shoot for, is that you be as gracious and truthful as Jesus was. There's a perfect blend, right, of grace and truth. If you've noticed 
if I've ever sent you an email, right? You've got an email from me, and on the bottom it, you typically says grace and truth. It's from Romans 1, excuse me, from John 1.14, that, that I want to be like Jesus, and, 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 and there's no better way to be like Jesus than to be full of grace and truth. In other words, you speak the truth, but you do it with grace, And so we're going to see how he embodied this. Really, this is an illustration. I don't know of any better illustration in all of Scripture and all the Gospels of how Jesus was full of grace and truth in the way he dealt with, the way he treated this woman caught in adultery. Well, I've divided this into two sections here, this story. Verses 1 through 9, we could call stoning sinners, which is the world is really good at, by the way. We're really good at stoning sinners, aren't we? That's what's going on in verses 1 through 9. And then secondly, in verses 10 through 11, we see saving sinners. That's what Jesus was really good at. That's what Jesus was all about. He was about saving sinners. And so let's look at these two sections this morning. Number one is stoning sinners. Verse 53 of chapter 7 is really the first place we have to start. Everyone went to his home, right? This was after the last day, the final day of the Feast of Booze, after Jesus had presented himself as a fulfillment of the Feast of Booze and come and drink, right? And if you do, rivers of living water will flow from you. And it says that they tried to arrest Jesus, but they couldn't. And the, the, the crowd was in a big conflict. The, the, the crowd was divided, and there was all this conflict about who Jesus was. And it's, it kind of ends anticlimactically. Everyone went to his home. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. And this was very typical of Jesus. He would teach in the temple during the day and spend the night outside the city on the eastern hillside called the Mount of Olives. In fact, Luke uh, specifically says this in Luke chapter 21, verse 37. It says, now during the day, Jesus was teaching in the temple, but at evening he would go out and spend the night on the mount that is called Olivet, and all the people would get up early in the morning to come to him in the temple to listen to him. And so here we have this uh, morning, this early morning, where as was his custom, he arrived back in the temple, and all the people were clamoring to hear him teach. And notice it says, he sat down and began to teach them. This was very typical of a Jewish rabbi. They would read the scriptures standing up, and then they would, stand, or they, they would sit down to explain the scriptures to show that they were in submission to the authority of the word of God. And while Jesus was sitting there teaching the crowds, he was rudely interrupted by the religious leaders who burst into the temple courts, dragging this humiliated, half-dressed woman in tow. Verse 3, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What then do you say? And then John provides his helpful commentary. He says they were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. Lest you uh, wonder what the motivation of these scribes and Pharisees Okay? It was not a righteous motivation. And so here the scribes and the Pharisees, the scribes were the experts in the law of Moses. They were like the lawyers of the day. They was, it was their job to copy the law and to interpret the law for the people. Most of the scribes were part of the leading religious party of the Pharisees, and the Pharisees prided themselves in being the protectors of the law. That was their uh, self um, really proclaimed title 
And in order to keep from breaking God's law, they built a fence around the law. The law wasn't enough. Let's build a fence around the law. And so they added hundreds of their own laws to Moses' law. And they considered their man-made laws, their rules and regulations, on par with Scripture. And they expected the people to keep them and the law in order to be in right standing with God. And so by the time of Jesus' public ministry, Judaism, which was the religion of the Jews, had evolved into a works-based righteousness system where you had to try to earn your way to heaven through your good works. And so consequently, Jesus' ministry of mercy and grace confronted this legalistic, judgmental attitude of of these self-righteous, self-appointed guardians of truth and morality. And they sensed that their power and their authority was being threatened as Jesus' popularity grew. That's why they tried to arrest him. And so they were adamantly opposed to him. And at every turn, they deviously sought to undermine his ministry and to ultimately end his ministry. They were already plotting to kill him. And so this was just their latest attempt to somehow catch Jesus in a situation where they could defame him and and maybe even rescue him, or or, excuse me, arrest him. It says they brought this woman caught in adultery in the very act. And the translation here helps us because that word in the the original language, caught, means to be caught red-handed, that she had been caught in the very act of adultery. And so you think, well, that must have been kind of hard to do. Well, that's if you're not spying on her, right? Apparently, they were either spying on her or worse, there's reason to believe here in this text, as you'll see, that they had set her up for this very purpose. This thing was a whole setup. This was a, this was a classic case of entrapment. And in either case, they apparently hauled her out of bed early that morning and dragged her into the temple and threw her at the feet of Jesus, embarrassed and terrified. And, and by the way, these, these guys were supposed to be the spiritual shepherds of the people. Can you imagine having that kind of shepherd, that kind of spiritual leader that would do that to you? But it's obvious by their actions, they had no concern whatsoever for the people of God that he had entrusted to their care. I mean, their harsh treatment of this woman shows that they didn't care about her. All they cared about was their position, their purposes, their their wicked schemes. They were just using her as a means to an end. She was nothing more than bait to her, kind of throwaway. And it was Jesus that they really wanted to catch red-handed, and she was merely just, just a dispensable pawn strategically placed to corner Jesus into a checkmate, right? If you're a chess player, you know the pawns, you know, you get, those are the first things to go, right? Those are just kind of like shields, right, to keep you from getting, you know, your queen or somebody, something more important taken from you. And so she was just a pawn, dispensable. And notice what they said. They said, now in the law, verse 5, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Were they right or wrong? They're exactly right. They were were the experts in the law. They knew the law like the back of their hand. And according to the law, adultery was a capital crime worthy of the death penalty. And you have to go back to the Old Testament to just see how this uh, unfolded. But of course, it started in in Exodus chapter 20 when, when God gave the Ten Commandments. 
And one of the Ten Commandments is Exodus chapter 30, 20, verse 14. You shall not commit what? Adultery. And he went on to, to talk about the punishment for that, for breaking that command. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. If there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. God goes on in Deuteronomy chapter 22 to describe the kind of death. So we know adultery is a sin. We know it's a, 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 it's a, it's a sin worthy of death. But what kind of death? Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22. If a man is found lying with a married woman, then both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman, thus you shall purge the evil from Israel. If there is a girl who is a virgin engaged to a man, another man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city, and you shall stone them to death. The girl, because she did not cry out in the city, and the man, because he has violated his neighbor's wife, thus you shall purge the evil from among you. So both the man... And the woman who committed adultery were to be stoned to death. Now, we can be thankful that we're not living in this era, right? The Old Testament era under the law, because some of us wouldn't be here today, right? We would have been killed already because we've committed adultery. And so the question is, what does God think about adultery? Has he softened his view on adultery? Does he not think it's that big of a deal anymore? What say ye? No, he still hates adultery. He still thinks it's a crime worthy of death, right? And so don't, just because we're not killing people today who commit adultery, don't think it's not that big of a deal. It is a big deal, according to God. But the question we should be asking ourselves here, okay, so if both the man and the woman, clearly the law says both the man and the woman who committed adultery were to be stoned to death, the question is, hey, where's the guy? Where, where's the guy? Why weren't they dragging the guy along with him? I mean, if they had caught the woman in the act, the guy would have been there too, right? And the fact that he was nowhere to be found may indicate that this whole thing was staged and that possibly he had been paid off by the scribes and the Pharisees maybe to, to, to solicit this young woman um, to seduce her and sleep with her so that they could make an example out of her and make themselves look good. And John tells us, so there's no question. He says in verse 6, they were saying this, testing him so that they might have grounds for accusing him. They were trying to trap Jesus, trying to find something, anything they could use against him. And this was just one of many times that they posed a, a question or presented a, a situation designed to impale Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. And this was a good one. I mean, if he said that she shouldn't be stoned, then he would contradict the law the law of Moses. But if he said she should be stoned, right, he would lose his reputation as being a friend of sinners and tax collectors. That's why the people loved him. And furthermore, the scribes and the Pharisees, if he said that she should be stoned, they could turn him over to the Romans for instigating an execution in defiance of Roman authority. And we know John 18, 31, the reason why the Jews didn't crucify Jesus because the, the, the Romans wouldn't let them uh, execute. They didn't have the power of capital punishment. And so whatever case, they, they could accuse Jesus here of being unjust or unmerciful. That's really what they wanted to do. You, how can you be just and, and merciful at the same time? It's an impossible dilemma. 
James Montgomery Boyce says this, with devilish insight, these men had hit upon the problem of all problems in respect to the relationship of the sinner to God. How can God show love to the sinner without being unjust? From a human point of view, the problem is unsolvable. But what they didn't realize is that Jesus Christ was God, in whom justice and mercy are perfectly harmonized. And that's why Christ's answer is a, is a balance between justice and mercy, between loyalty to the law and, and love for the sinner, between grace and truth. Notice verse 6. They were saying this, testing him so that they might have grounds for accusing him, but Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. So he didn't answer him right away. He just bent down and began scribbling in the dirt which has um, piqued the curiosity of many a Bible scholar, um, the question we should naturally ask is, well, what did he write? Well, I'll tell you what he write, wrote. We don't know, okay? We, we don't know what he wrote. Nobody knows. But that doesn't stop commentators from suggesting various things, like probably the most popular view is that he was just, he was writing out a list of their sins, that's what some people say. Or he wrote out a verse about being a malicious witness from the Old Testament. My favorite is he was just doodling to buy himself some time to figure out how to respond. Because <laughs> it was a tough question, you know, so you had to buy yourself some time. Well, it's, it's not for us to know for sure what he wrote, so it's best not to even speculate. And if it was essential to the story, right, I believe the Holy Spirit would have included that. I mean, he, he preserved this for us. Why wouldn't he preserve that? But I will say this, that while we can't know what he wrote, the fact that he wrote with his finger in the sand may have been symbolic of his divine authority as the ultimate lawgiver and judge. You remember in Exodus 31, 18, Moses recorded how God wrote the Ten Commandments with his own what? Finger. And so regardless of what Jesus wrote with his finger, what he wrote was with the same authority as God when he originally wrote the law. That's compelling. Verse 7, but when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. So they were kind of getting impatient with Jesus, whatever he was doing in the sand, right? And so they kept badgering him for an answer, and they were probably thinking, aha, we've got him now. He doesn't know what to say. He must be stalling for time. Come on, Jesus, cat got your tongue? But just when they thought they had, they had pinned Jesus in a rock in a hard place, he offered a brilliant response to their answer. He says, hey, listen, let the one without sin cast the first stone. And that was according to the law. Deuteronomy 17, 7 said the person or persons who witnessed the sin was required to throw the first stone in any stoning, and then everyone else would join in. And so in essence, what Jesus was saying here is, listen, God's law stands true. You guys are right. She deserves to die because of her sin. The death penalty should be exacted, but only by those who have kept the law perfectly. And so all those who, who are without sin step right up and start stoning her. Go for it. Have at it. Now, unfortunately, Jesus' response here 
he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her, I think has been misunderstood and misapplied by many people in our day. It's frequently used by those who oppose the death penalty, right? Well, the, you know, the Bible says the person without sin, let him be the first to throw the stone. And we all know none of us have kept the law perfectly. And so uh, we, we have no right to be killing other human beings. Sounds spiritual, right? But that contradicts the rest of Scripture. Romans 13, 4 talks about God giving the government a sword for judgment. And you don't give a sword to slap somebody on the wrist. A sword is to kill, right? And so capital punishment is a biblical concept. Some say that um, they like to use this passage to refuse when, they, when, they're, when they're refusing to fulfill their biblical responsibility to confront the sin in other people's lives. Who am I to judge, right? Who, who am I to judge? I, I've got some, who am I to judge? And it sounds spiritual, right? But Galatians 6.1 says, brethren, all of us as Christians, if you see someone overtaken at a fault, you are a spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, looking to yourself lest you to be tempted. So you need, you have a biblical responsibility to, to restore someone, to confront and restore someone who's in sin. You need to do it gently and humbly though, right? Well, I think what Jesus was getting at here when he said, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. He was, he was touching on the same issue that he addressed in the Sermon on the Mount back in Matthew chapter seven. Remember this, Matthew chapter seven, verse one, do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Again, another verse, people like to rip out of context and say, oh yeah, don't judge. You know, judge not lest you be judged. Well, that's just the beginning of what Jesus had to say. Let's continue on. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You, what? Hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus never said he didn't, want to help, he didn't want us to help others deal with sin in their lives. He said, just make sure you're dealing with the sin in your own life first. Don't be a hypocrite who's acting like there's no sin in your life, right? But you're going to help everybody else with their sin. That was what the Pharisees were doing here, the scribes and the Pharisees. They were guilty of what Paul said in Romans chapter 2, verse 1, he said, therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. In other words, these Pharisees, these scribes were guilty of the same exact sins that they were accusing this woman of, that they were judging and condemning her for. And so he wasn't saying that anyone who sins can never judge another person because none of us could ever judge another person, right? He was simply confronting the scribes and the Pharisees for their hypocritical, self-righteous judgment of this woman. They, they were so focused on the speck in her eye, they were oblivious to the log in their own eye. And they walked around with their robes of self-righteousness, right? Walking around and, and holier than thou, looking down their noses at everyone else, thinking that they were less than them, that they were better, right? And everyone else was wor a worse sinner than they were. It 
Someone has said this, it comforts and quiets the depraved heart of man if he can only find a person worse than himself. He thinks the greater sin of another excuses himself, and while accusing and vehemently blaming another, he forgets his own evil. Now, we, we love to do that, don't we? We, we, we forget that the standard is, is God and his word, and so we make the standard our neighbor or our brother or sister uh, our, our spouse, that other guy at work, that other person at school who's a lot worse, doing a lot worse things than I am, right, than we are. And, and we use that standard of other people. It's like the, the story of the two boys that went out into the woods one day and all of a sudden a bear, they saw a bear, uh, you know, coming after them. And, and one of the boys immediately, you know, got down on his knees and began tightening his tennis shoes. And the other guy says, you think we're going to outrun this bear? He said, I don't have to outrun the bear. I just have to outrun you. In other words, right, as long as I'm a little faster, right, than you, I'm not going to deal with it. As if we get to heaven and says, well, you weren't as bad as that guy. Well, that's not the standard. This is the standard, right? And so here these Pharisees, these scribes, had forgotten their own sin. And so Jesus took the opportunity to remind them of it. And they got the point. Notice verse 8. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. Interesting. So they realized that they had been bested by Jesus again, yet again, kind of left with their tail between their legs. And they were convicted about their sin, and one by one they slowly slipped away. And I think it's interesting that John mentions that the oldest ones went first. I would suggest that it's probably because the longer you live, the more keenly aware you, you, you are aware of your sin, right? And so here we see an example of how human beings are experts at stoning sinners, right? We, we love to stone one another. That's our natural sinful reaction response. When we see another person in sin, we just immediately grab for a stone. Well, let's look at the contrast now of Jesus and saving sinners. Saving sinners. Jesus was an expert at saving sinners. The end of verse 9 says, And he was left alone, and the woman where she was in the center of the court, straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? That word condemn means to accuse someone of being guilty and, and, and being subject to some kind of punishment. But you can't be accused of something without witnesses. And you can't be condemned unless someone files charges against you, right? I mean, think about it. If you were in, in, in court and somebody had, 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 had pressed some charges against you, filed some charges against you, and you're there in court, and, and the prosecuting attorney is there doing his thing and, and trying to seal the case, and all of a sudden he just gets up and leaves. The prosecuting attorney just gets up and walks out, and all his witnesses get up and follow him out. And you're just left there, you and the judge. And the judge looks at you, and you look at the judge, and the judge's like, nothing I can do, Right? I don't have any attorneys, I don't have any, I don't have any witnesses, right? All he can do is dismiss the case at that point. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Since all the witnesses and accusers had, had walked out, had left, Jesus, the divine judge, drops the charges. 
And notice what he goes on to say. She said, no one, Lord, no one condemns me. Don't miss the Lord, by the way. I think that's significant that something salvific was going on here, that this woman, whether she had come to know Christ already, was coming to Christ here. She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Neither do I condemn you. The only one qualified to condemn her didn't. He was the only one qualified to condemn her. Why? Because he was only the, the only perfect guy there. The only one who ever lived who was without sin. But what's more, what gave him the right to forgive her was that he was the Lamb of God who would offer himself as a sinless sacrifice on the cross, which gave him the authority to forgive her. And he forgave her based on the fact that he was going to die for her on the cross and be treated by God as if he was the one who had committed adultery. So she didn't get off easy, okay? Some people say, well, she got off easy. She got off scot-free. She didn't get off easy. He didn't excuse her sin. Her sin cost Jesus his life. Someone had to die because this woman disobeyed the law. But the penalty, the penalty for her sin was paid for by Christ's death. This is, there, there, there is no cheap grace going on here. In fact, James Montgomery Boyce says, this is the gospel. This is the gospel. This is the only solution to the problem of how God can remain just and also excuse the sinner. To us, salvation is free. But it is free only because the Son of God paid the price for us. And then notice how he concludes. She said, no one, Lord. Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Don't miss this. Go from now on sin no more. Stop doing that. Stop committing adultery. Stop sinning. So while he didn't condemn her, he didn't condone her sin either, did he? He commands her to repent of her sinful lifestyle, to abandon her life of sin. And someone has said this, that when we encounter Jesus, he always demands the transformation of life, the turning away from sin. Sin was not treated lightly by Jesus, but sinners were offered the opportunity to start a life anew. That's what was happening. She was being offered a new start, a fresh start. So Jesus wasn't soft on sin here. He, he clearly said, listen, don't do it again. Quit it. He didn't say go and sin as little as possible. He didn't say obey some of the time, even most of the time. He says, hey, I want you to obey all the time. We're like, well, that's impossible. You're, you're, you're right. <laughs> it is. God's standard is absolute perfection. And so Jesus set before this woman, the perfect standard of God himself, isn't, remember when Jesus said in Matthew 5.48, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You're like, well, that's not me. Well, we know that until we get to heaven, none of us are going to be perfect. But in the meantime, that's why there's forgiveness. There's forgiveness in Christ. And man, I don't, I don't like a lot of Christian bumper stickers. I think they're cheesy. I think they're shallow, superficial. But I love this one that says Christians 
are not perfect, just forgiven. That's the truth. We're not perfect. We're not sitting here going, hey, look at us. We're all in our nice clothes today. We're coming to church, and you're not because you're worse than we are. No, we're not perfect, right? We mess up. We sin just like you do, but we're forgiven. That's what's missing in your life. You got the same sin we got, but what you don't have is that we're forgiven and you're not. We're forgiven. And that should never, ever give us any license to sin. You remember what, how Paul addressed this in Romans uh, 5 and 6 when he was talking about God's amazing grace and how his grace is greater than all our sin. And then in chapter 6, verse 1, he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sins so the grace may increase? In other words, if it's true that the more you sin, the more grace you receive, well, I'm just going to go for it then. I want as much grace as possible, so I'm just going to sin as much as possible. And Paul says, may it never be. How shall we who died in sin or died to sin still live in it? In other words, God's grace When we've experienced God's grace in our lives, it motivates us to sin less, not more. And I'm concerned right now because in the church today, there seems to be this movement that is, is, if I could say, uh, maybe almost overemphasizing grace to the point where it's almost like you feel free to sin. Because we're all just messed up and, 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 and God forgives us and, and, and there's not this, you lose a sense of this, may it never be, and this, this sense of mortification and I don't want to sin. Yes, I'm grateful for God's grace. But I don't want to make that as an, an excuse to sin. Some of you heard me share this story when uh, at the Spiritual Life Conference we just had a couple weeks ago, but I know all of you weren't here, and I just thought of this story when I was thinking about this, this, this whole concept of, uh, I do not condemn you either, go from now on, sin no more. And I had something happen to me just a few weeks ago that, that, that was absolutely amazing. It's never, ever happened to me in my entire life, and it will never happen again. I was driving with my wife and the speaker and his wife our spiritual life conference, the Mueller's, and we're giving them a little taste of Texas, so we were going to head out to Brenham and let them go to the Bluebell factory, right? Take the tour and eat some ice cream, and that's kind of like Texas, Montgomery kind of thing. So anyway, we're doing that. We thought it'd be fun. I called ahead, and the last tour was at 3 o'clock, and we were late. And I thought, we need to get after it, or we're not going to get there. And they can't miss the Bluebell factory. So I was just kind of going along out there on 105, as you guys know how it is out there, right? And... Uh, just wide open, and uh, I was wide open, and uh, wasn't really watching my speed. I was just kind of enjoying the conversation. We're just boogieing along, and all of a sudden, I see this Texas Highway Patrol coming this way, and I did exactly what you do when you see that. You look down at your speedometer, right? And I saw that I was going over the speed limit, quite a bit over the speed limit. And I thought, oh, no. So I slowed down, right, just like you do, and then... And then I looked in my rearview mirror, just like you do, to see what he's going to do, right? And sure enough, the brake lights came on, and he pulled over and did a U-turn. I thought, I'm toast. And I'm just driving along, and I'm just kind of, you know, you get that sick feeling in your stomach, like you get, right? You got that sick feeling. 
And so, and they're still talking, we're just talking about ministry, and I'm watching this thing, and they pull up, you know, they kind of speed up and get right behind you, and they just wait. Why don't you guys, why don't you just light me up? Just do it, okay? I know I'm caught. And, and he didn't. He just kind of rode behind me for a while, and that just made me start to sweat, you know, you, just like you sweat, right? And, and so, finally, whoosh, puts him on, and I said, hey, guys, we're getting pulled over. And he was like, what? They didn't even know. I was just watching this whole thing happen, right? And, of course, Chris, the, being the, you know, the crazy man he is, he pulls out his cell phone. He's starting to videotape this whole thing, right? Oh, this is great. I'm like, thanks, Chris. Appreciate that, brother, you know? So, anyway, the police officer asked me to come out of the car, which has never happened before. It's like, he actually had me get out and come back behind the car, and he said, uh, he said, uh, sir, do you realize how fast you're going? I said, listen, I know I was going way too fast and that I deserve <laughs> to get a ticket. And he says, well, do you mind if I ask why you're going so fast? I said, well, we were trying to get to the Bluebell factory before it closed. <laughs> straight face. I was able to say it was straight face. And he just kind of nodded and said, he said, why don't you come back in, in, the, in, in my car with me? It's kind of hot out here. And so he let me sit in his police car in the front seat. Front seat, not the back seat, you know. <laughs> I'm in the front seat. And I'm trying to act like I've never been in a police car before because I was like going, wow, this is pretty cool. <laughs> Looking around at all his stuff and we're just talking. And he was the nicest guy. I mean, I was like this. I said, man, you are like the nicest guy who's ever pulled me over. And I wasn't like trying to like flatter the guy. I, was, I really meant this. This is like a really nice guy. And, and he says, well, you're probably not going to think I'm so nice after what I'm going to have to do. And I knew right then he's not writing me a warning. This is going down. I'm getting a ticket. So he did. He wrote his ticket. He explained it to me. This is what you got to do. This is where you have to report to. This is how much you have to pay. And, and went through the whole thing. I said, listen, sir, I'm sorry. You're, I totally deserve this. And, and uh, thanks for being so kind and gracious. I got out of the car. I get back, and we're just kind of driving along, you know, the speed limit, <laughs> thinking we're done. We're, we're, never, we're not going to make it to the thing. I, we missed our opportunity. And I was, so I was kind of like, not only sad I got a ticket, I was sad we weren't going to get to show our guests the Bluebell Factory, and I wasn't going to get to eat ice cream. I was sad about that. Just kidding. So anyway, we're driving along the rest of the way, and all of a sudden my phone rings, and I didn't recognize the number, so I just you know, kind of sent it to voicemail. I uh, didn't think anything of it. Then the same number rang again. And uh, so I thought, somebody needs to get a hold of me. So I called the number back, and it was this police officer, this highway patrolman. And he said, hey, call me at this number. I need to talk to you. So I said, oh, what did I do now? Maybe he saw something else wrong with my car. Or I'm like, oh, I'm really in trouble now. Worn out for my arrest or something, you know. So I call the number back. And he says, hey, I said, hey, this is uh, Ken Ramey. Uh, you just pulled me over on 105. And you're, you need to get in touch with me. He says, yeah. He said, listen. He said, you know what? He said, uh, ever since you got out of the car, um, I felt bad. I should have never given you that ticket. And he said, I've never done this before in my career but I'm going to invalidate your ticket. And he said, you don't have to do anything else. Um, I, I've taken care of it. And I, I mean, I didn't know what to say. I'm like, okay, I'm scared. Do I, do I ask him why he's doing that? Or I just say, thank you. You know, what do I do? And I just said, uh, this is all that came out. I said, thank you for not giving, what, giving me what I deserve. That's all I could say. And he said, okay. I said, okay, goodbye. <laughs> and I hung up. <laughs> And we were talking about that on the way, the rest of the way to the Bluebell factory, and I was like, wow, what an amazing illustration of God's grace, right? That we're all condemned. We're all deserved. I mean, we deserve. We were speeding. We were lawbreakers. We deserve to get that ticket. We deserve to have to pay the penalty. And then Jesus, for no reason, right, that we can figure out, says, 
I'm invalid, I'm canceling that. That's the doctrine of election, right? Why, God, why? We're like, God, why? We don't know why. He chose to do that, right? And so we got, we made it to the Bluebell Factory, three o'clock, we got into the last tour, and uh, I was having a hard time focusing on ice cream at that point because I was still kind of jittery. You know how you get when, just like you get, right, after you get a ticket, <laughs> a little jittery, and you're just kind of replaying it in your mind. And so um, as I was just walking through there, and just I was enjoying the tour, and Chris and Gene were fun, and we were laughing with them and stuff. And, but the whole time, I was just kind of overwhelmed with this sense that, you know, I totally want to go the speed limit on the way back to Montgomery. It was the weirdest thing. It was just a sensation. I totally want to obey. I totally want to, to, to honor that guy's graciousness. I mean, that if I were to happen to be driving back and I saw him on the side of the road, I could be like, I could wave and I, I learned my lesson. I'm going the speed limit. You know, I, I wanted to please him. I did. I right, wanted to please this guy because he was so kind. He was so gracious to me. And I thought, isn't that the way it should be with God? He's been so gracious to us that we just want to please him. We just want to honor him. We don't want to keep being lawbreakers. We're, we're so grateful that we didn't get what we deserve, right? That we just want to live a holy and obedient life. Somebody said it this way, if you've received God's mercy, you're forever bound to live for God's glory. Here the Pharisees wanted to make an example out of this woman, and they were hoping Jesus would too, and guess what he did? He did make an example out of her, but in an exact opposite way that they anticipated. Instead of using her as a bad example and killing her for her sin, he used her as a good example of God's grace and mercy to forgive repentant sinners. Jesus literally saved this woman's life. He, he stepped in and saved her from certain death by dying for her. Guess what? We are that woman. This is a picture of the gospel, and we're that lady. We've been caught in sin. We are under condemnation. We have broken the law. We deserve to die. But Jesus steps in and says, I'll die in your place. And you can be forgiven too, just like this woman was forgiven if you place your faith alone in Christ's death in your place on the cross and you're willing to go and sin no more. I said at the beginning that we were all gonna see ourselves in this story in a number of ways. Some of you can relate more to this woman and the sense of condemnation that she felt. I mean, this is you. You can, you can relate to her. You can appreciate this woman because you are like this woman. You live in shame. You live in, under condemnation. You carry around baggage, this depressing list of things that you've done or said or not done or said, and you have this sense of guilt. You just live with this sense of guilt and shame because of your sin, and, and, and since... The, Sins that even you've repented of, you still feel unworthy. And I just want to encourage you this morning that Jesus took the condemnation on himself on the cross so that you could be forgiven. Not mostly forgiven, but completely forgiven. 
That's why Paul said in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. If you're a Christian, there is no reason why you should live in condemnation. C.J. Mahaney in his little book, The Cross-Centered Life, says this. He said, God is glorified when we believe with all our hearts that those who trust in Christ can never be condemned. The Christian who desires to live a cross-centered life will regularly face his or her own depravity and the seriousness of personal sin squarely and unflinchingly. It's a reality, but the reality of the death and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of sin is even greater. It's even greater reality. The punishment he received was for you. His resurrection is proof that God accepted Jesus' sacrifice. The sins of your past and the sin you just committed this morning were all atoned for and you need carry their weight no more. Get out from under condemnation, Christian. Jesus says to you, I do not condemn you either. Some of you maybe could relate more to the self-righteous legalistic Pharisees because you carry around rocks in your pocket ready to, to stone others for their sin. You do it with your spouse. You do it with your kids. You do it with your neighbors. You do it with the people at work or at school. Maybe you even do it to the people in this church. You think you're better than they are. You think that you're, you, don't, you don't think you're the worst sinner you know, right? Other people are worse than you. I can't believe they would do that. How could they? I would never do that. They deserve to be punished. We need to learn to be gracious and merciful, humble and forgiving. Not condoning sin. Not sweeping sin under the rug. I'm not saying that, suggesting that. But we need, to, we need to recognize and work on our own sin first so that we can be used by God to help others overcome their sin. And to realize, but for the grace of God, there go I. Ken Geyer has a little book called Moments with the Savior, Devotional Life of Christ. And he describes the story of the woman caught in adultery in his own flowery words. But he's got this prayer at the end that I want to read that I hope would be our prayer as Christians, our prayer as, as a church. He says, Dear Lord Jesus, I confess with shame that there are times I have stood in the midst condemned. And there are times I have stood in the crowd condemning. There are times my heart has been filled with adultery, and there are times when my hands have been filled with stones. Forgive me for a heart that is so prone to wander, so quick to forget my vows to you. Forgive me, too, for my eagerness in bringing you the sins of others and my reluctance in bringing my own. Forgive me for the times I've stood smugly Pharisaic and measured out judgment to others. Others I am not qualified to judge. Others who, though qualified, refuse to. Help me to be more like you, Jesus, full of grace and truth. Help me to live not by the letter of the law, but by the spirit of compassion you showed to that woman so many mornings ago. 
Give me, I pray, the wisdom of the older ones in regard to the stumblings of others so my hands may be first to drop their stones and my feet first to leave the circle of the self-righteous. Thank you for these sweet words of forgiveness. Neither do I condemn you. Words that flow out so freely from your lips. Words that I have heard so often when I have stumbled and sinned. And in the strength of those unmerited words, help me to go my way and sin no more. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this story. While its origin is suspect, Lord, its truth is not. And Lord, it's so convicting. Lord, because so many of us are like these self-righteous Pharisees who are very legalistic and judgmental and critical and we are so quick to judge others when they sin. And others of us are so prone to live under condemnation even after you've forgiven us for our sin. That we still live under that and the guilt and the shame. And Lord, I just pray you'd liberate us today. Liberate those of us who like to condemn others. Lord, liberate us from condemning others and Lord, liberate those of us who condemn ourselves. And Lord, that we would be um, a church that truly reflects Jesus, that we would be known as a church that is filled with people who are filled with grace and truth. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.